Welcome back to The Workroom. My name is Dr. Garseng Wong. And I'm Dr. Lila Flavin. We are in The Workroom, as you know, taking some time in the week to decompress, share, learn, connect over mental health. And we have our first guest ever, Dr. Jesse Gold from Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Uh, welcome, Dr. Gold. Jesse. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, you can call me Jesse. It's too much work to keep calling me Dr. Gold. <laughs> So as our first ever guest, I was thinking we always talk about how we're early career psychiatrists, but it would be really great to hear about kind of how you made the choices to like where you end up today, what your day to day looks like now, how you figured that out. Uh, uh, That's a big question. (laughs) I think it's a lot of like trial and error. So I technically count as early career psychiatrist, too. So I graduated residency in 2018. So I'm not that far out. I, you know, was an anthropology major as an undergrad and have a master's in anthro. I was really interested in stories and people and where they come from. And pre-med was like the worst thing you could possibly do to me. And so anthro was like a way to balance that and I guess keep me in pre-med because otherwise I would have dropped out like Mm -hmm. five times. And then when I went to med school, you know, my, my father is a psychiatrist, so I sort of tried not to become a psychiatrist and was like, I like the brain, maybe I'll be a neurologist. And then, you know, I really liked that in psychiatry, we got to still spend time with patients and it was a longer time and we got to ask about their lives and social history. So that was a little bit more anthropology. And then, you know, you could see a hundred people with depression and maybe the outcome is the same and you still give them the same drug, but it's like their story that got them there and the story that you can help them with. So I really liked that as well as the fact that psychiatrists were like the only people that I saw doing what I would call weird stuff in medicine. So like non-traditional academic careers where all you do is academic all the time. And like I started writing in med school, like personal narratives and really liked that and got, I don't know, like a lot of good feedback on that in comparison to the kind of feedback you get in med school in general. And so I was like, oh, I got to keep doing this as part of my career. And I think psych was the only field that I saw that like modeled. So that was part of the decision. When I went to residency, I thought I was going to do like college mental health. And that's what I ended up doing mostly. So I think I wasn't way off base there. As I've been faculty, I started my job doing clinical work in the undergrad itself and being one of the psychiatrists on campus. Over COVID, that has evolved tremendously. And I'm actually back kind of at the med school and I see faculty staff and faculty staff children, which for me is college age kids. So I still see them, but they're all like sort of healthcare worker or faculty adjacent <laughs> these days. My job is sort of, you said, what's my day to day like? Um, yeah. I still do a lot of clinical. Um, my clinical is a large part telehealth right now because that's what people like. But I do like being in person. I see that group that I was talking about and do mostly med management medications, but I've never been a psychiatrist that has been a person who's like, just going to talk to you about side effects. Like I do a ton, as much therapy as possible in the time. I just don't see people who are not on medication consistently Mm -hmm. as a therapist. And then the other parts of my time, for one part, I am what is called the director of wellness engagement and outreach. I named myself, so it's a mouthful. Um, Really what it is, is over COVID, I was doing a lot of the hospital system response to the mental health of healthcare workers, faculty, and staff. And 
was spending a lot of time in meetings and like admin and like running around giving talks about mental health and COVID and our resources. And so that just became a role instead of just being (laughs) something I was doing on top of everything else. Mm -hmm. And then the other bit of my time is now to a grant, um, which is in the Health Resources and Service Administration grant we just got, which is like a services grant looking at how to connect healthcare workers and faculty and stuff to resources that actually exist. Like, why are they not using them? How do we get them to use them? Why is it so confusing to navigate the mental health system, even when you're in healthcare? Like, how do you make that better? And so that's now part of my day too, which is like a lot of meetings and a lot of reading focus groups and things. Wow. Okay. So now I get, cause you've written a lot about kind of mental health for healthcare workers. So it sounds like that you just got pulled into that during. Yeah, I would say, so in med school, my research was on like med school, mental health and access to care. And in residency, I started a program where as psych residents, we saw med students in support groups. Like we made the whole support group program for like us to learn group therapy, but also med students to have people to talk to. And so I've always been interested in the group in its entirety, but COVID just brought it more to light as it has with many things. And they needed someone who actually understood the kind of like research and backing and things like that to, to run a lot of this stuff and think more about it. So that's how that's happened. But it's not because I wasn't interested. I mean, I would say most of what I'm interested in comes from my own experiences. Like, you know, I didn't think college mental health was done very well when I was in college and took me a while to want to go get care. And when I got care, they said I wasn't sick enough to be treated on campus. And that was like a big thing that stuck in my head. Like, how do you be a safer landing for people and, a, and a, mm. you know, especially people who've never gotten care before? And then in med school, I mean, I just told you I hated pre-med. I didn't love med school either. So like, I've seen, I just felt like, the whole process was just making people <laughs> stressed out and sad and in myself included at times. And I think that's been part of why I've tried to figure it out and make it better. It's like my own experience informed it. Yeah. And then how, how did you get into like writing for InStyle and like all these fun articles that you <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I should have said that's a part of my job. It's like not it's like job adjacent for me. So like the title has outreach. So my my office has been nice about counting some of the like external outreach and journalism and uh, like interviews and things like that as part of it. But a lot of that's in my like afternoons and weekends and stuff like I'm not great at work life balance, but I got into writing like in med school. I used it as journaling. I was feeling things and wanted to write about them. And so I did. And, you know, I wrote a piece for Annals of Internal Medicine when I was in med school about this situation that happened when I was on a third year rotation where I gave cardiac massage to a person who was already dead and Mm -hmm. like sort of my reactions and feelings about that. And I decided to actually publish that because I got a lot of push to do it from mentors and stuff to help change. And I saw like, the difference that writing could have in making people think over just like complaining in my dean's office where I got kind of shut down and told that that's just what the person does. So like Mm -hmm. when I wrote it, the dean sent it to everybody to read. So it gave her a platform too. I think to have like a different voice. And so I realized that with writing, not only did I get positive feedback, which was nice, I got like a bigger platform to do more good. And so since then I tried to write more 
you know, navigate and network where I could. So like when I was a resident, I won a Psych Times essay contest. And then I kind of was like, okay, who who works at Psych Times that can help me write other places and kind of have built it from there. Like when I was in residency, I direct messaged a bunch of editors to traditionally female magazines um, and just was like, hey, like, do you want a mental health expert to write something? I'm still like, I'm still, you mean like Instagram DM? That's Yeah. Like Twitter, (laughs) but, and, but, and I think if you looked at my Twitter now, you'd be like, of course they responded. Like I have a verified account and I have a lot of followers, but when I was in residency, I had like 2000 followers or something. So it was just kind of creepy, I'm sure. But they were like, you know, here's the actual health editor, write them with your bio and some things you're thinking about. And you know, some people didn't respond, but like the former editor of Glamour did. And that's how I got started really writing for those kind of magazines. Um, my editor from there went to InStyle. So that's how come I started writing for InStyle because she took me with her. And the fun thing about freelance is you can kind of do that pretty easily. And then Self is the same thing. Like the former editor of Self replied to a direct message and I started writing for them. And I've probably been writing for them since like 2017 or something. So just kind of navigating waters that nobody tells you how to do with no real mentorship and like just being somewhat courageous about it and okay being rejected. And I still get rejected all the time. And like, it's partially why I write for the same places, because if they reject me, it's because I pitched like two sentences, not because I wrote a whole piece and I don't have time to just like write pieces and have them not get anywhere, which is like kind of what you do for op-eds all the time. It's like you write the whole thing and then you have like a time limit. And if they don't, somewhere doesn't like it in the time limit, you just wrote the whole thing. Like it's a lot of work. So I've tried to not do that anymore as much as possible because it's really exhausting and frustrating. And I have these relationships with a couple of places that it just feels more like easy to pitch. Like I accidentally pitched when I wrote and checked in with one and was like, yeah, I don't have anything to talk about. It just kind of feels like Groundhog Day all the time. And they were like, oh, can you write about that? And I was like, oh, like I was just telling you that I have nothing to write about. But if you want me to write about that, that's fine. But it was like totally random. It wasn't actually a pitch, but those kind of things, because I have real relationships now is just mm-hmm. like so much easier because if I gave them a crazy idea, crazy used non-derogatorily and just right. meaning absurd, yeah. you know, they would say like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like, well, like, nice try, Jesse, but like, no. Or I think InStyle has been like my editor when she moved there. She's the editor, deputy editor, I think for InStyle.com now. I mean, now there's no more print as of like two, one month ago. But um, she, you know, when she moved there was like, I want to do more mental health. I want to do more health, but like it's a fashion magazine. Mm. So it's going to take time. And so over time, I think we've kind of pushed them to do more and more stuff. And I have a column there now. And so I think they're open to more of that conversation, maybe because society is. But yeah, it's Hmm. really like aspirational how you struck it on your own threw yourself out there I mean that's a real act of being vulnerable and I was really struck by your pieces where you share about your own mental health how you acknowledge that psychiatrists mental health providers also have feelings just because you don't see it in the room doesn't mean we don't feel things and then that you also you know take medications and and I, I think that's something we we're trying to do on this podcast too to share about ourselves and work to decrease the stigma around mental health 
by opening up like, hey, we have feelings too. And we go through hard stuff too. How has that changed, if at all, changed your relationships with your patients to, you know, put yourself out there publicly and then come back into the room with them? Yeah, it's interesting. So you'd think because I see a lot of people in sort of like the 19 to 30 age group that they would have all Googled me and stuff. And a lot of them, it takes them a while to stumble on stuff if they do at all. I don't know if that's just because they were too lazy to, to check out the who they were seeing or because the mental health system is so messy that like you just go with who you have and it doesn't really matter what I did, but kind of both. And so surprisingly, not as many people as you'd think have read that or read a lot of that stuff. You know, I think it more has influenced like my own beliefs about proper times to self-disclose and why. I struggle a lot in my personal therapy between like what I feel comfortable doing in the room with a patient and what I feel comfortable doing publicly. Mm-hmm. And oddly, I have a lot more of a problem talking about my mental health and stuff, even though like I talk about it publicly in the room because I don't think that's my role and I don't think they need to know if they don't ask and mm-hmm. blah, blah, I don't want to take over the session. I'm not a blank spacey person at all. Like, I mean, I'm just sort of like not a person who would ever be like, hello, this is my job and I'm going to use a therapy voice and this is what I'm doing. But I... I question a lot like when to talk about something that happened to me to be helpful in this situation sometimes because I see healthcare workers or college kids and like I have experiences that are relevant to what they're talking about. I'll bring it up like I, you know, test taking anxiety or, you know, just the fact that med school is really hard and residency is too, you know, um, but I, I do struggle with that like line, which is weird because I say a lot publicly. <laughs> I struggled a lot to talk about meds. And had to talk about it with my therapist a lot um, because I didn't realize why I was struggling so bad with it and realized I was totally stigmatizing myself for being on medicine. But I had always like and on Twitter and stuff, I post a lot about my therapist and things she said. I've already said that she told me like three things just in this time that we've been talking, (laughs) I'm sure. But it has never been hard for me to talk about that. But it is less organic for me to talk about meds. Like it doesn't just like come up when I'm talking and you know, I've been on them since college. They haven't changed and I don't see a psychiatrist. So it, maybe it's just not in the forefront of my mind too. It's just like a thing that I do, but it was definitely harder to talk about that than anything. I've had a couple of patients, you know, bring it in and mention it. It's never been negative. <laughs> I'm always a little bit awkward when like it kind of breaks the third wall thing for me. And I'm like, oh yeah, that is me. And like, did was I, was I good on the news? And like, yeah. this kind of like, I don't know why that's my reaction, but I always struggle a little bit with it. And a couple of them follow me on social. I don't follow back. I know because I see their names <laughs> and they like, like something mm-hmm. or a couple of patients where I wrote about sexual um, side effects of medicine recently and <laughs> the patient that probably inspired like, one of the stories <laughs> um, mm. said, oh, hey, who's that about? Like oh, over social yeah. to me. <laughs> and like I responded to that because I thought it was funny. But for the most part, like I don't follow them back and I try to keep the boundaries. But I have a public account. So like mm-hmm. they can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. It's not like. I could say no and like accept them or not. So that was like a rambling way to say, I very much believe in vulnerability. I work in healthcare worker mental health and I'm telling people to get treatment. So if I can't talk about it myself or can't talk about how we struggle ourselves, like 
I feel hypocritical, but I'm working on how to incorporate that into work, like the other part of work. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if you saw a post recently. It was Jake Goodman, but he, he's a psychiatry resident and he posted a selfie where he has like a a medication in his mouth. And he said like, I'm a psychiatry resident and I take medication. And I remember just, you know, you see so many things on social media, but I saw that and I was like, whoa, like something about it really struck me. Like the directness of it, like his face, the medication on his tongue. And I, I wonder if it's something about like therapy almost feels like it's separate from the medical model. Like it's just its own thing. Like when I'm talking about therapy, I feel like I'm talking about something that most people don't have access to within the medical system. And someone was like sharing something that some people just don't get exposure to and like how that can be helpful. Whereas medication is like, that's our currency in a way. Like we're almost like putting ourselves back into this medical model as a patient in like a different way. Something about that is like more vulnerable or something. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I've reflected in it. Definitely. Some of it is to like, we have beliefs about what it means for people to be on meds, even though we give meds. So it's really warped. um, And I'm working on that. But, you know, I think therapy to me, like the way you put it makes some sense to like, we've kind of made therapy almost in the wellness sphere somehow. Mm -hmm. It, it, people who it's like trendy to go to therapy. (laughs) It's not scary for people to go to therapy, but meds hasn't like crossed over to that at all yet. Like some people you'll see, celebrities mention meds but it feels like this like huge revelation when like they probably have been talking about their therapist for a while or they've been mental health advocates for a while so I think it's just like we're not as comfortable talking about that as like normal yet um I saw Jake's post actually was like an art in an article with him about it talking about why he got backlash mm-hmm. he said you know, he's on a lot of platforms. I would say like Instagram and TikTok are his bigger ones. And he didn't get as much backlash there, but on Twitter he did. (laughs) And a lot of it is from this sort of like old school model of what we do in our jobs and like people thinking that he's like selling the drugs by like promoting it or like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think when I wrote my piece on my own meds, somebody said like, I'm still on them because I'm addicted to them. And I was like, well, actually they're just helping. So I didn't get off of them. And so I think there's just like a lot of misunderstanding. And I think people on Twitter keyword search and keyword search things like ECT for sure and medications up there too. And so when people want to talk about an experience that they had that was hard, they're going to, and it's going to come off like angry, right? Like we've all had patients that show up uh, somewhat unwillingly for sure in the ER, but like even an outpatient where they didn't have good experiences with psychiatrists before, or they come on a lot of meds they don't need, and they know they're on a lot of meds they don't need, or they had a lot of side effects on stuff. And like, they all have real and valid experiences. It's just somehow in social, the nuance gets lost and they just come off like very angry and dismissive of the fact that someone could also have a good experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, I have a lot of empathy for most of the people who respond negatively to those things because it's more of what we represent and what our job is than it is Jake, but they are not usually open to the conversation around that, which is like, just because meds did this for you doesn't mean they aren't also helping a lot of people. And like both things can be true. Like you can have a bad experience with meds. You might not later. And you could have a bad experience with meds. Tell me you're never going to be on them again. And like half the country could still be on them and doing well. Right. So they're not mutually exclusive, but social can make it feel like they are. And that's a, it's a little hard that way. 
Yeah. See, I thought you were going to say that for me, at least Twitter is like more a medical community. So I thought you were going to say that it was the medical community that kind of lashed out because I have definitely had this, like, even when we were going into psychiatry interviews, people saying like, don't mention mental illness that you've had or in your family and kind of, especially psychiatrists are on the lookout for any sign of instability. I guess it was, it was said to me at the time. So I thought it might be some of these kind of like older psychiatrists saying like, don't like you need to be the strong, healthy one, don't reveal this or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in my piece too, that healthcare professionals are pretty open to it in part, maybe because COVID's been exceptionally hard for them and they need like someone else to talk about it because they don't feel like they're ready to. You know, the studies and data and stuff would all say that when we, like we worry about people judging us like peers, supervisors, applications, and our patients. So unless that's like dramatically changed in the last like couple of years, that's there still. So maybe there's a difference when it's someone else and we're like mental health aware or whatever. But it's definitely, I wouldn't say that healthcare workers gave like a ton of backlash, but I know what you're saying about applications. Like when I was in residency, I always struggled with the fact that when I was reading applications, I actually knew what it means to be what they said. So like, it's not that I feel like I'm stigmatizing them for writing about mental health. It's that I actually have more of an awareness of like the difficulties because of that. Mm -hmm. And some people will write like they just got out of an eating disorder facility or something like that. And you're sort of like, ooh, I don't want to have any different opinion of you because of this, because it's good that you want to talk about this, feel open talking about this, got treatment when you needed to. In the same respect, as an intern, you don't have access to food, your schedule is horrible, you're not eating, and you're very likely to turn and have a problem because right. it's like a very easy thing to happen. And so you're like weighing those two things. I always found very hard in, mm-hmm. in evaluating applications because like I don't want to hold anything, like anything against people. I would love them all to talk about stuff, but there is sort of like this weird who but I know what that means. And should I take that into account because they put it right in front of me? Or do I just pretend that's not a thing? Because it's realistic. It's not stigmatizing, you know? Yeah, it's like you want to be protective, but don't want to impede them. And it's a both. And it's so, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, that's a really bad example that you chose is is a powerful one to imagine sitting there with that. Yeah, I always found it very hard like to think about that we have the same conversation about well similar conversation about the fact that like our my service sees mostly people who work in the university they don't want to be seen like some people choose to just be seen outside right but then some people come to me what do you do about trainees and I got in a big argument (laughs) saying I don't want trainees I don't want med students I see all of their supervisors and that's not okay and some other people said that I was stigmatizing mental health by saying that I didn't want students there because it, it hasn't like they're they're getting care. They get that in an OBGYN clinic, whatever. I said it's privacy and confidentiality, mm-hmm. not stigma. Right. Which is like it's their right to not have the med students know as a dean or high-ranking administrator that they need help, right? And then like, especially to not have them in the appointment. But I didn't even want them to be able to have access to my calendar for the same reason. Because I was like, I don't want them to know who sees me. It's just not okay. 
if it was like something that all the people in our clinic signed, sure. But then they wouldn't have come to see. Right. So I don't know. I struggle a lot with like, what is confidentiality and like your own story to tell when you want to tell it, if you want to tell it versus like, how is that stigma? Because like you could have like high blood pressure or like cancer and not want everybody to know too. Right. Mm -hmm. Like just cause it's physical doesn't make a difference. Yeah. It is complicated. I was just going back to what you were saying before when you were talking about like your path of like DMing random people and like realizing you like to write and then wanting to keep writing like, I just, I, I don't know. I was so relieved hearing your path because I, yeah. I heard a lot of similarities kind of in what I've been doing, but I've been doing it very like on my own. Like, I, of course I see you, I see other people out there. So I know that they exist, but they're not like my colleagues like that I see. And so it feels like this very, very strange path to be walking to like, like, I think a lot of the messaging I got in medical school was like, anything you say in the public could really affect you. So like basically don't mm-hmm. like, or anything that you write is forever. So be careful or like kind of the opposite of like what I feel called to do, which is like, wow, I know so many things. I really want to share it. And like, I really want to connect with people. So just hearing you traverse that path. And like, I've felt similarly, like there's no roadmap. I don't know if this is like working, but I'm like ending up in some cool places that are rewarding. So I'm just going to use that as information to like, keep going. Yeah. Your story of that is reassuring and familiar to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of that's just like an old school belief of like what being a health communicator is. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that if anything COVID's taught us is that we need to be able to communicate on bigger platforms because other people do and will and won't do it in a way that's helpful for us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, n- I didn't really ever think about doing the rest of this stuff, like TV stuff or radio stuff or whatever. And that sort of has all just come up because people find you on social and they realize what you're saying makes sense or they read something you read and then they just want to talk to you. And then it kind of spirals from there because like freelance people write for like a hundred places or whatever. So if you're nice to people, you usually get a chance to be in more places and like get asked more often. Um, so you know, I never really thought about that stuff, but like, especially over COVID as people have asked, it's like, yeah, there might be like researchers who are older and know more than me on some of this stuff, but like, maybe they're not as good at talking to people and maybe my skill is that, and that's okay. Like, I don't super love that, you know, it has to be our name associated with it. And then there's this sort of like ego thing and like, whether that had something to do with like, now you're famous, it's like a doctor, whatever. It's not something that's ever jived well with me. There are definitely people that you'll see on social that fame goes to their heads because they were doctors and we didn't expect to have followings and things, right? And then there are people who are really good people and are really about the cause. And like, it just happens to be associated with their name because that's how it works. But like Jen Gunter is a really good example. Mm -hmm. Like if you, you know, she's exactly like you'd think she would be. I mean, she's over- takes huge risks too. Yeah, or takes huge. I look at her and I'm, I'm like, wow, you're brave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. takes huge risks, like in a very similar way to like uh, Shannon Watts on guns, like, which is like, if there's a troll, they retweet them and then make fun of them and stuff like that. Like, I've never been comfortable doing that, but I like watching them do it. But, <laughs> you know, Jen's like very normal and like is exactly like you would hope she would be. And Megan, Megan Rainey is also like that when you interact with some of those people and they actually care about you and the things you're struggling with and care about the cause so much more than they care about them being the voice of the cause. Mm. It's very, it's very evident who that you like those people. 
you know, a lot of us like know that they're not mentors in this. And so like I respond to almost all my DMs if I can, unless they're like absurd and like actually asking for treatment. (laughs) And, you know, usually like that generation, so like a bit older, like Jen and stuff, like they're actually pretty good at it too, because they sort of fell into it without support either. And Jen didn't actually get like well-known until like her forties or fifties. I think that we're all sort of like, we get that there's no path. We can always try to help and answer questions, but there's also like still no path. (laughs) So like we can answer questions, but I don't know that like we can't get you jobs or, you know, we can answer questions that are kind of basic and help you and support you and whatever, but there are limits to that too, I think. Yeah. It's just nice to know there are others on the path, even if you're like all in parallel simultaneously. It's like a nice, nice feeling. For sure. I mean, there's a couple of us who are like writing books right now. um, And I think that is a helpful thing to have when you go from short writing to long writing. And Mm -hmm. like, there's no, no one teaches us how to write books and, and they certainly don't in medical school. (laughs) Um, And so having some support over like the process or like what the process was like for them is helpful. Yeah. What do you get from the, like the pieces that you write for in style, the kind of like Chile press, how does that energize you? Or like, what does that give you back to do that kind of thing? You know, if people comment and stuff, it's more helpful. I mean, at least they're negative, so it doesn't really help. But like, I like to know like what people think and what they think about because of it. And I find it fun to do like watching a TV show and commenting on the stuff they should have talked about in mental health or explaining something more clearly or pointing out things that were wrong is like something I'm doing anyway, (laughs) like every time I watch a television show. So that's fun for me. Some of the other things, it's like, what's something that I feel like I answer in every session with every patient? And Mm -hmm. what would be easier if it was like somewhere in one place? (laughs) Then also, if every patient's asking me this, like, what about people who don't have access to me? Like what they must all wonder this too. And so I feel like it's sort of like taking what I feel like people are asking a lot of are like struggling with a lot and I can help them one-to-one and like sort of saying, okay, therefore more of you are going to be struggling with this too. Like I'm going to help you on a bigger platform. Mm -hmm. I don't get a lot of like people saying like, oh, like I printed this out and it's super helpful for me and that sort of thing. But I hope that's what, you know, they're thinking about. And I hope that having someone who knows what they're talking about writing this stuff is like somewhat helpful too, right? Coming from an experience and not an over exaggeration of expertise. And I ask other people if I don't know, but I I know more than like a random person talking Mm -hmm. about the topic. So I feel good about that. And I feel like it gives it a different angle. And sometimes when they're editing, they'll be like, but what would a psychiatrist think about this? Or like, what, like, how do you think about this particular topic as a psychiatrist? Like things that I just took for granted or thought would be boring to people or thought like had no relevance that Mm -hmm. when they read it, they're like, oh no, but I want to know, like, what are symptoms of PTSD? You know, this sort of stuff where I was kind of like, I just want to talk about the show, (laughs) you know? And so I think that it's helpful to, to think about like what questions people have about Mm -hmm. our job and our career and like, how to change the perceptions of it and the misconceptions of it. And, you know, mental health expertise in general is often neglected. You can watch any news program and and realize that, like, you know, they ask general medical experts to talk about mental health because they already have them there and they don't have expertise in mental health. And so trying to emphasize our 
expertise, I think, is also something I really care about, which is like mental health is a field and the people who should be quoted and interviewed and writing about this, at least if they're experts writing about it, should be people who trained in it. Right. Right. And it's not always like that. It's often like random people and like journalists are fine. Right. Like that's our job. (laughs) But I mean, like, I don't love when like an ER doctor's on TV and they ask them about like suicidality. Yes, they have a lot of mental health in the ER, but they never comment like as an ER doctor, I see suicidality like this. And then I call sick, you know, like they never point out to the reporters like where our career begins and there's ends or how we have an expertise. And it's not just like feelings and coping and like anyone can talk about that because it's not true. Like everybody can't talk about that. I mean, that's a big thing for me is like emphasizing that we trained for a reason and we like this topic for a reason. And it's something you should be asking people who know. And at the same time, it's in every conversation that you're having. And if you're not having that conversation with a mental health professional in the room, like in an administrative level, in a Hollywood level, in a news reporting level, in a governmental level, like you're missing a whole bunch of thinking on the topic because mental health is involved in everything, let alone just communication itself, you know, like I think we're experts at communicating Mm -hmm. and listening and understanding and making people feel heard. And that's a skill you could use from us if you wanted. Yeah. It's one of the things I've noticed lately. I think it it really happened in the pandemic, but people, even my, my friends and family have become so much more interested in my job. And like in what it means to be a psychiatrist, what it means to have a mental health crisis. So there's that piece, which is exciting. Like that it's not, it, it used to be, and this is just a couple of years ago, it used to be kind of like this, like immediate, like fear, like, oh God, you're a psychiatrist, like scary back away. You're going to analyze me. And right. now there's a lot more curiosity and a lot more of like, oh, I saw a therapist for the first time, like that kind of reaction. But then also in now in TV, it's like constantly, I don't know if I'm just more aware of it, but it's constantly seems to be a topic of conversation, like addiction or overdose or something. And my partner is always like telling me, cause I'm always pointing out like, that doesn't make sense. Or like, that would never happen that way. Or, That's inaccurate. Cause part of it is it's there more, but it's also seems to be wrong a lot of the time, how they're depicting it. It's often based on writers lived experiences. Mm. So it was right to them, but not expertly right. Right. Um, and I think they don't do a lot of checking. It's something. So I wrote this like media guide to mental health with MTV and Biocom. And it's something we talk a lot about as an expert group, like kind of also in collaboration with the Hollywood group, which is like, it would be nice if we were involved in the planning stages, not when it's Mm -hmm. done and you want like a stamp of approval, because you will find someone that does our profession (laughs) that will stamp of approval something to have their name on something Hollywood, right? But if Mm -hmm. you ask somebody who knows early on, then You can choose to not take everything that they say, but the chance that you build a character that's more correctly developed is going to be much higher. And you don't have to listen to everything we say, (laughs) but it helps you like understand what would or would not be the case or like what stories are missing or what's a really big stereotype that's just like happens all the time. Like for PTSD, for example, like literally everybody just has nightmares and flashbacks. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you're watching, you're like, I don't have PTSD, but like, you could. So it's not very helpful if like the range of symptoms is like war, sexual assault and flashbacks and nightmares. Right. And so 
having people involved earlier on being genuinely curious about some of this stuff, particularly the diversity of portrayals in both symptoms and people, I think is really important and something that, you know, we've been thinking about for the guide. I just, you know, part of it is like how to get people to use it and that sort of like the phase we're in, which is like, okay, so we wrote this thing and we'll continue to have it be a living document and change things or whatever. But like, <laughs> like how do you get them to actually call the experts, like incorporate mm. the experts? And like, you know, some people do it quite well. Like I think Ted Lasso's person obviously knows what they're talking about because, but they don't think really complicated topics. You know, there's like a couple things I would have wished they didn't do, but for the most part, they're just showing you how resistance exists in therapy and what it looks like to work through that and have a good relationship with someone. <laughs> there's some things, of course, like I wouldn't want my patient at my house. Like there's just right. things that like wouldn't happen. But for the most part, that shows pretty good. The most part, Yellow Jackets is pretty good. Like there are things where, you know, on the on the whole, they did a really thoughtful job. And so you can kind of see that like they probably asked someone, mm -hmm. but it's yeah. just not the case like all the time. Yeah, it's it's. It exciting that it's becoming like a greater topic in in media and and maybe that's a result of all of the terrible things that we've collectively gone through the pandemic and it feels like it's one thing after another earlier you said like wow it feels like it's groundhog's day every day and it's you know i i keep thinking about the memes that are like you survived pandemic congratulations your prize is world war three and it's it's like i think that's coming up in both like you know what i've been feeling personally and then in the work with folks in the room just this sense of like when is it gonna end every it feels like the world is kind of falling apart it's really fun to do our jobs right now you're just making it sound <laughs> making it sounds super appealing to everybody <laughs> and it's I think sometimes people look to their therapists for answers or reassurance. And I know I'm working on for myself on this tendency to want to fix things or, you know, make them feel better. But really part of our job is to normalize tough emotions and work on more like awareness and, and kind of flexibility and tolerating tough emotions. But how I cried about that with the therapist, like in the past, like year, like, just, I'm not making people better. Right. Like, why can't I make people better? I usually make somebody better. Like, mm -hmm. can you help? What's wrong with me? I feel ineffective and blah, blah. And her, she also was like, but like, you're there. And that's the point. Like, your, your job is not to like magically fix people all the time. And I think because in outpatient, you often see a positive trajectory for some people versus like inpatient where it can be kind of frustrating. I think it's hard when that's taken away and you realize like you do serve other roles. But I had the same thing. I was like, everybody has problems and they keep coming back and it's all the same problems and I haven't fixed anybody and I'm not good at my job anymore. And it was like this whole thing where like exactly what you're working on, which is like, but there's more to our job than just making someone better. Yeah, it's like I have the same questions as my patients. It's like, what do we do about all of this that's out of our control? And I mean, it's cool to hear about everything that you're working on. And, and it's nice for me to have this space to kind of push my energy towards. At the same time, in the back of my mind, I can't help but think it feels weird to kind of do something for ourselves when again, the world seems like it's falling apart and we're not maybe doing anything to address that directly because of course we can't, but like, how do you navigate that for yourself or like with your, with your folks? Yeah, it's really hard. I think a lot of what I struggle with too, is some of the things that I enjoy for myself are still helping other people. So like 
I like writing genuinely. Like it has yet to get to a place where it's like a job. I know how it gets there and I don't like that and I prevent that, right? And so, but writing is not the same as journaling. And so my therapist said, hey, like you aren't journaling. Like, why do you think that's journaling? Get a real book and like write. And then if you end up writing something based on that, that's a different step. Like it's not what the intention was. And I was like, no, no, because like half of my pieces are like about stuff I'm struggling with or like I wrote about RBG dying and like that. I was like, it's like that was super like vulnerable, blah, blah. And she's like, no, 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 that's not what that is. And I think like that has been hard for me, which is like a lot of the things I find like solvesin are still technically advocacy and helping people. And of course, like that is a mature defense mechanism in some capacity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, really being able to try to like say like, OK, like that can be part of what I'm doing and I need to be doing something for me that's not, you know, also a part of my job and not right. also where other people are getting a piece of me, too. And I think over the pandemic, I went through like early on, went through a lot of insomnia because I would feel like, okay, my role on social media is like to validate every healthcare worker who's struggling right now. And I was like, why is this what I'm, yeah, but like, why, like, why is this what I'm thinking? And like, I do it, like, if I see it, and I definitely haven't stopped doing that. But like, it was like this compulsion almost where I was like, if I'm not paying attention and helping them, they're just gonna be alone. And like, like, it was like how I took out my like, lack of control and inability to fix things for people. And um, I had to be like, wait a second, like, you can't help everybody. Like, you have to help yourself. Like, not sleeping is not the answer. Like, how do you do that? And I still struggle with it all the time. I wish I could tell you that I'm so much better at it now. I mean, I think it's a big thing of what I work on over the pandemic, saying no, finding coping skills that don't rely on other people and are not part of advocacy, (laughs) you know, I think have been really big things for me. I wish that we learned that earlier in life, like saying no, especially because I mean, it's been hard, like the pandemic especially was hard for me because like my populations have been struggling a lot. And so the things that I get asked to do, I like. And so I'm like, ooh, like, this sounds fun. Let's do this interview. Like, la, 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 la. And then I realize I have like three talks and like four <laughs> interviews. And I like didn't realize like how I got there, but I was evaluating it like that was a good idea. Like, let's do this. Like, it seems fun, whatever. But I had to like shift my criterion and say like, no, you might like a lot of what's offered to you, but can you actually do it? And that's been hard, but totally important. And we don't take enough time to realize like how much our job affects us. And, you know, I struggled a lot too with like, we're not frontline workers. Like Mm. what right do I have to be burnt out? What right do I have to feel tired? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after a while, like if you listen to the stories over and over, like you can get secondary trauma, but in the same respect, like you're doing a lot of holding all of the other people's emotions of what they're struggling with. Like, of course you're going to feel bad. Right. <laughs> like it, you know, and so kind of saying like, Hey, like you don't have to be directly exposed to COVID <laughs> to actually be helping people and like deserve whatever that means to have some sort of reaction to it. But those are the things like for me that I think our job makes particularly hard especially when you're like remote (laughs) and you're just like working in front of a computer and like you have friends who are in an ICU, right? Um, To be able to say like, I'm still like, what I'm doing is like worthy of fatigue or something. I don't know. It's a weird thing, but I agree. It's very hard to prioritize ourselves. And even in a field that's taught to care more about ourselves and like value emotions and 
our own emotions and situations and learn from them. I don't think it's modeled as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said yes to us. I'm glad we made your cut. <laughs> well, you know, I owed you, but I think, you know, you know, for me, like helping people who are curious and having conversations that can be useful to people interested in this kind of stuff or like, you know, I pretty much only hang out with the residents and med students who are like lost and angry, right? Which is like, I don't have a direct like role otherwise. And I'm always open about how I feel about things and my, my mental health and stuff. And so it, it, I'm happy to be like a person who can be that for people. Yeah. You know? Well, and you're really speaking to this, this balance and I'm like, so in the midst of trying to figure this out, but the balance between doing something that energizes you on some level, but then is still your job. And then is also draining is like, and I've, I've totally overshot, like in the way that you're describing where it, it feels good to like be out there writing something, saying something. And then you're also like, wait, but I'm also more tired, even though it feels good. And I can only do so much. So like hearing you put words to that is really helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think we forget that things like talks or whatever, like our job, when you're talking about sad stuff, you're still talking about sad stuff or stressful stuff or people still ask hard questions or whatever. It still takes stuff out of you. And so Mm -hmm. like being, I don't know, like kind of aware that things that you might enjoy, like can also be things that take energy out of you in the long run. And so like being able to bounce, that's really hard. And I, I overshoot it a good amount of weeks. I'm a little bit better at it. But anytime I go into my therapist and I look tired, she's like, what did you do? (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, what's your week been like? Because it looks like we're back to this, you know? And I'm like, oh, man, I tried, (laughs) you know, like, but it's just not there. So, yeah. And like a lot of our job that's hard, too, is like the mental health system is inherently broken. Right. Mm -hmm. And we hold a lot of that for people and frustration about what we can and can't do for people but they want us to do, or they get angry that we can't do. And we're angry and mad and sad and frustrated too. Right. But we can say that, but it doesn't mean we can fix it. And so I think holding that is also hard. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, you got it. No, happy to fun. Yeah, this Thanks is for awesome. asking me. You had a, a lot of fun and you had a whole episode on, on just the power of naming emotions. I think that's been a common topic on a number of podcasts. We, we listen to a lot of similar podcasts. So it's it's cool to hear your experience too because it, it's validating for us as like trainees. Yeah. Our co-residents yeah. have listened to our podcast and they're like, wow, you guys are really putting yourselves out there. And it's like that kind of like, oh, and then it's great to then have other models of people putting themselves out there. And you're like, yeah, this is a thing that like there's a lot of value in. Like, in Yeah. The- I mean, we're trained in a medical model, right? So like we mm-hmm. struggle with naming our emotions too, because the medical model trumps the mm-hmm. mental health model. Right. And so I don't like doing that either. I hate sitting with feelings. I want to go do every coping skill I can do instead of have a feeling. And, you know, it's like figuring that out is rough and, you know, being vulnerable, like it's the only way to change culture. We're just not taught that enough. And it makes you more connected to people. It makes you more creative. It makes you do better things in the long run. So I'm a big fan of like being authentic and vulnerable as much as possible. And I hope, you know, that people don't get scared away from that, from other people modeling. I hate to say the wrong thing, but it's what I feel. Um, So like, and yeah. I think it's easy to be because we're graded or that's what we see. And so we don't want to be different. And if you're different, it can be easy to feel like you're just don't belong. And I think that there are people, it just might not be in your direct vicinity that you're looking at every mm-hmm. day. 
being vulnerable is the only way to change culture. I have to think about that. It's a big one. Uh, Let me know what you think. You guys are going to be like, what was that thing that you just said? I, gotta, I mean, I've read like a lot of Brene Brown, so I think that, oh, yeah. just, you know, <laughs> that, that contributes to my thinking. But I also think like in some of what she said, if you apply to medicine, you can see like why we don't do certain things and like why some of medicine has so much resistance to change. Um, and so that's why I think a lot about vulnerability. Yeah, I've listened to her a lot too. But this idea that like vulnerability itself could change the culture is really cool idea. It's powerful. Hopefully it's true. (laughs) Hopefully it's true. Yeah. (laughs) I'll get back to you on whether I find that to be true. (laughs) It like breaks the double standard that we have for like healthcare providers. It's like we have to be invincible or stable for for the people and, and hold all the suffering. Yeah. And I think that people like should not be like, the takeaway is not to be vulnerable when you're uncomfortable being vulnerable. I think that there's definitely like lines, right? Like you mm-hmm. learn over time that you feel more comfortable saying something because you've worked through it or you're not in a place where you feel judged or whatever. And you're in a place where you're more comfortable to say something that maybe you wouldn't have been before. Maybe you're never comfortable, but you watch other people and that just inspires you to be a little bit different one-on-one with people, right? So like, I think evaluating your comfort level with like what part of your story and if you tell your story is very important before you tell what your story is. And I think, unfortunately, with social media, especially like people just kind of like blurt things out sometimes like, um, you know, here's my whole mental health history. Enjoy. And you're like, well, like, did you think about that before you did it? And if you did, cool. But like a lot of the younger people, you can tell they just were like, this seems to be trendy. Like, let's talk about this. And there's a lot of things that like happen with responses that are worth thinking about and feeling how you feel about it if you're not ready to tell it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a delicate balance of like, you know, it's powerful to share, but it has to be at the right time, but you don't want to like fragilize someone to say like, oh, are you really ready? And I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's complicated. People are complicated. For sure. Everyone go follow at Dr. Jessie Gold, J-E-S-S-I Gold. She has a lot of content to share and it's it's really accessible. It, it's, a, it's a fun read. Covers a lot of topics we've talked about here and, and more. Thank you so much again, Jessie, for, for your time. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I didn't scare you from having more guests. <laughs> no, you didn't. Smooth landing. Very smooth smooth landing. good. That's what this is for. I'm glad the headset helps with the smooth landing. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. As a reminder, our views are our own. Content is for informational use only and should not be used as medical advice or substitute for therapy or psychiatric treatment. See you next time and stay curious.